I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ernie Wexler, the chair of the corporate group at Kramer Levin. Ernie, thank you so much for joining us today. David, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are a passionate student of the art of negotiation, and that's what we're going to talk about today. When did you realize that you really enjoyed studying negotiation, thinking about it, being as good as you can be at it, and that you wanted it to be a central part of your practice? So it's interesting. The college essay that I wrote was on the comparison of three languages that I knew. I was always very interested in communication, and negotiation is a certain type of communication. So I always knew I was interested in that. I compared the languages that I had been exposed to, which was English and Yiddish and Hebrew, and they're all very different. And I found that really interesting. So I think I was always interested in communication. When I started my career, I did heavy doses of capital markets, regular corporate work, and some M&A mixed in as well and deal work. And as I got more senior and was in the seat of the person who had to do the negotiation, I really fell in love with it. It was a combination of having to use analytical skills, having to be on your toes at all times, and having to really utilize emotional intelligence in the way that you're dealing with other people and getting to resolutions, getting what your clients want without, first of all, being effective at getting what your clients want, but also without overreaching and being disagreeable. Getting to Yes is maybe the classic book on negotiation, certainly in the American business world. What did you take from that book when you read it? So that is actually the first book that I read on negotiation. I thought it was excellent. And it really talks about principle-based negotiation. So when you're sitting in a room negotiating with somebody, back when people sat in rooms, You don't want to get hung up on a particular issue and a particular outcome for a particular point. You really want to rely on what your principles are, what the basic principles are that your client needs in order to be prepared to move forward in a transaction. And then all of the points that you make should be centered on those principles. And it tends to make things less personal. You get into less of the procedural fights. And it's a much more defensible place to start from when you're having your discussion. So getting the yes assumes rational negotiators and rational economic actors. But of course, a lot of people are irrational. And so how do you manage irrationality in a counterparty? And are there times when you've left a negotiating session and thought, you know, I could have been a little more rational there or more focused on the bigger picture? So yes, you got the underlying assumption of getting to yes, which is that you are dealing with rational actors. And that's not always the case. So there is another book that I have relied on. And I was in London negotiating a deal with a client for one of the private equity funds we work with. And the principal that I was dealing with at the private equity fund was a very tough negotiator. She would go to the limits and get every point. And she actually did quite well for herself in the negotiations. And then we were out for dinner, we were talking, and we talked about our negotiating style. And I talked to her about getting to yes. And she said, yeah, that's a pretty good book. The book that I really rely on is a different book called Never Split the Difference. And it's written by a former FBI hostage negotiator. 
And the thesis of that book is exactly that. Like getting TS is fine if everybody's a rational actor, but we're dealing with human beings. Human beings are not always rational actors. And if you are negotiating a hostage situation, there is no, we did pretty well in the negotiation. He got, he did okay. We got a lot of them out. God forbid, you have to get every one of them out. And there is no way to do that by being rational with the counterparty. So you really need to get into the psychology of the counterparty and allow that person a way to win. So my perspective on negotiation is to really use both of those because human beings are both rational and irrational. And when there is room for rational behavior, then just behave rationally. When you're really dealing with the human elements of it, don't lose sight of that. Understand the counterparty and get that counterparty to help you get to a resolution. And one of the key takeaways from that second book, and you can imagine this in a hostage negotiation, God forbid, I've never been involved with one, but in many negotiations, the author quotes another book called The Art of War, which I have not read. But one of the principles of The Art of War is if you want your opponent to retreat, build a golden bridge for the person to retreat on. And so one of the elements that I try to keep in mind in negotiation is not to pulverize the other side, certainly not when there's an audience and all the business people are on, even if you could create a situation where that person is able to make a graceful retreat. How has your negotiating style changed over time? And again, do you, after a deal or individual negotiation, do you evaluate your own performance? And how do you go about doing that if so? I do. And I talk to my team about it. I've gotten better over the years. When I was younger and I hadn't read these books yet, you learn by watching. And different partners have different styles. One guy that I worked with early on, I was a mid to senior level associate. He was a screamer. That's the only way that he knew. That's how he negotiated. And I remember being in a conference room with him and his argument to the other side was stop. And the other person would say, what do you mean? Because stop. That was his style, okay? Then I learned from other people who were much more rational, much more measured. And one of the lessons that I took away from learning from a lot of different people is if you're a screamer, and I don't advocate that style at all, but you can't be rational. And if you're not really a screamer and a fighter, don't try it because you're going to scream, the person's going to scream back, and you're going to have nothing natural to do after that. So you really got to look around, pick your style. I do like reading about it. I do like to talk to my team about it afterwards. So you really have to know who you are as a person to negotiate effectively. Correct. One of the things that I like to believe about myself is that I'm a person of integrity. So getting on a call and bluffing and, you know, there's a little bit of that sometimes, but yes, you need to know who you are. Are you the screamer? Are you the bluffer? Or does it really matter to you? that while protecting your client's interests really well, you're also maintaining your integrity. So yeah, you've got to know who you are. In a sense, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is about negotiation. It's a kind of ancestor of getting to yes. What did you learn from that book when you read it? Love that book. I kind of discounted it because it was written in the late 30s. And my sense was we have learned so much about psychology over the last several decades. How could it still be relevant? But I was reading a biography of Warren Buffett, 
the snowball, where he talked about how valuable that book was. I said, okay, well, if it's good enough for Warren Buffett, I'm going to try to read it. And I learned so much from that. It, first of all, alters somewhat the way that you interact with people on a daily basis and gives you more of a framework for appreciating other people. One of the great things I learned from that book is that you can't sell something to somebody that they don't want to buy. And so it happened to me recently, tough negotiation. The counterpart was his style, and he can't do anything other than his style. His style was bulldozer, 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 bulldozer. And we were getting to some crisis points in the negotiation. It happened a bunch of times. And I sat down and I thought about the Dale Carnegie book, and I used it in the negotiation. And so an example that he gives in the book is to get a bunch of yeses along the way and get the person invested in the path that you're going. So with this particular instance, it started with, and this was an all-hands call. So there's more than a dozen people on the call. Now, so-and-so, we have been at this quite some time. I think everybody on the phone understands you advocate very zealously and to my chagrin, very effectively. So you try to get the temperature down with a little humor, whatever for your client. And we know that you're trying to protect these particular principles for your client. But I also know that you're really a deal maker. And so the purpose of this call is to see if there's a way consistent with what you're zealously and effectively advocating for your client. You could also let me try to do that a little bit for my client. And what if we try to do X, Y, and Z, or any variant of that that you can think of you know, what's your thought about that? And it was a real help to have read the book because this is a very challenging set of negotiations. And I needed to get him to want to buy what I was selling. And he needed to buy it because by buying it, he looked like the consummate deal maker. How to win friends and influence people is often seen as a classic for salespeople. And what you're talking about, getting people to say yes several times is a classic sales technique. What's the relationship between negotiation and sales? And have you seen people over the years whom you thought were just fabulous salespeople whom you learned from and pieces of whose style you incorporated into your negotiating style? So the similarity in sales and negotiation is when you're selling something, you're trying to sell somebody a product. When you're negotiating, and if you can do it in a really collaborative way, you are trying to sell to that person to accept a set of resolutions that you think works for both parties. So one of the lessons in life is you're always selling. (laughs) Like Everybody's always selling something. And so when you're negotiating, you are selling a certain package of resolutions. And I think that's a similarity. In terms of whether there are people that I've observed selling and have used that, no, it's really come more from watching other people negotiate. And there have been senior partners when I was a younger partner that I have watched negotiate. And I can think of a couple in particular, but I really adopted their style. Why is why a bad word to use in negotiations? And then is it a bad word afterwards when you're asking yourself, why did I do that? Why did I ask that question? Why are we really focused on this point? So this is one of the reasons I love negotiations, because every word matters in a negotiation. You need to be on your toes. So you're thinking analytically, but then you also need to think about the effect that your words have. 
And in particular, I've appreciated it over the last bunch of years where people have debated in politics whether words matter, right? And in a macro sense, it's harder to measure. In a negotiation, it's very quick. You say things in a certain way, it has a very quick reaction, and it can alter the course of a negotiation in a negative way. So yes, I love that words are important. Why is why a bad word? Try putting a suit on, walking downstairs, and having a person in your family say, why'd you wear that suit? (laughs) That's why, why, because it suggests that you should not have done what you did and you need to answer for it. Interestingly, going to why words matter, I was in a negotiation yesterday and a lot of large financial institutions involved in a transaction. And one of our counterparties figured they'd give it a try. Send us a revised document. By the way, everybody else is ready to sign in the morning. So just let us know that you're signed off. We had not heard for quite a long time that there was anything like a deadline on this. So we had a bunch of discussions ahead of time about how to deal with it and the like. But what was interesting was we got on the phone call and the client opened the call. And there's, again, a dozen people on the call by saying, we were surprised to hear from you that you had an intention of closing this week because that hadn't been said to us before, et cetera, et cetera. The word surprised is also a loaded word in these negotiations. Surprise in other contexts is like really a nice thing. He was signaling to them that was way off base and we're completely ignoring it. Disappointed. Now that is clear why it sounds like not a great word, but again, it goes to how important words are. I was on a negotiation a bunch of years ago and someone that I worked at with the client, we had a conference call on a Saturday morning, his boss did not join the call. And he said in front of the counterparty, I'm disappointed that so-and-so did not join, talking about his own boss. And I said to myself right there, this guy's giving notice. You do not say something like that. So those are examples of why I enjoy the negotiation, because there are these words that you can use that will escalate tension, and there are words that you can use that de-escalate the tension. What words do you really like in a negotiation? What words do you like to use to help get people on the same page? Respect, appreciate. You know, I really respect the fact that you are taking a principled view. Completely appreciate that. We got your draft. We really appreciate. We understand you're trying to make movements in these areas. We respect the fact that there are areas that are difficult for you. And we're hoping to try to resolve those in a collegial way. How do you size up a counterparty, especially when you're negotiating across from a company founder or a family-owned business, as opposed to across from someone else in the financial world who is much more likely to view a transaction in the way perhaps one of your private equity clients would? Yeah, look, in a lot of ways, a sale from a private equity fund to another private equity fund is the easiest type of transaction. But a lot of our private equity fund clients are buying businesses from founders. And those founders are very talented people, but they're not M&A people. And so the business people at the sponsor, before they get to me, have already found a way to respect the fact that this person is very good at what they do, even though they don't do M&A. And then you get to that person's lawyer. And that person may have a trusted attorney that they have worked with for their entire career that may just not be as much of an M&A attorney. 
or they've done some M&A, but not that much M&A. And you need to accord that person the respect that he or she deserves as well. The fact that they're the trusted advisor, that this person chose to do an M&A transaction, knowing that M&A transactions are not central to that person's practice is something that you should respect because it means that they trust the person's judgment. The person may be expecting the New York treatment, you know, the arrogance, and we're going to teach these people a lesson, and we're going to show a lot of impatience, and we're going to, anytime that he says something that's off market, we're going to slam him with what's market. And I have been on the receiving end of that in the early days of when we were doing private equity, and I was up against one of the private equity shops. And it was every comment that they made was, you obviously don't know the market. And they were very aggressive about it. And in those situations, you just need to stand your ground and show that you do. And that's how you deal with it. When you're dealing with a founder's lawyer that doesn't know that, again, you just need to start with respecting the person. There's a reason that he's in the room. And it's not because he does not give valuable advice to the person. He gives valuable advice. And then it's a combination of some of the things that we spoke about. A lot of times, it's helping build a golden bridge for the person to retreat on and doing it one-on-one and doing it, again, expressing the amount of respect that you have for the person understood. It's just, this is what we are seeing. And here's the reason that we see it completely understood that you're taking that position. But think about these couple of reasons. And you may find that because the clients are aligned in certain ways, that while you have an extremely valid point, it may not be as important to you as some of the other points that we're prepared to give on. You clearly study negotiating really closely. What are your favorite negotiating environments? Which ones do you find most challenging? How do you prepare for negotiations? And also, what have you seen change and stay the same in negotiation? Given at the beginning of your career, you almost always would have done it in a room that evolved to phone calls, conference calls, which you've mentioned a number of times. And of course, in the last couple of years, the Zoom call. So it's very interesting. As you said, years ago, when we first started, most of the negotiations took place in a room. And then before the pandemic, we would comment to ourselves, the firm and other market participants, our clients, I could do business with my own client and for years and never be in the same room as them. And never even see them because nobody was using Zoom before the pandemic or other video platforms. And then during the pandemic, people started using Zoom. So you ask me, what's my favorite? I like in person. It's probably the best way for people to strip away a lot of the less helpful behavior and just interact in a more human way with each other. And it forces you to be principle-based understand the other person, use the right kind of words, because it's not comfortable to be in the same room and get into a heated argument. So people behave a little bit better in a room together. So that I think that's a really nice way of doing it. What was really interesting is, again, prior to the pandemic, we would do deals, we would never be in the same room. Everything is on a conference call. You know, you try to look at a picture of somebody on their website, get a feel for what they're really about. But a lot of the communication is lost when you're not in the room and you don't have the visual cues. So Zoom is a pretty nice way to negotiate. And now where you can easily do negotiations over the phone, my preference is often to do it over Zoom. You do need to a certain degree to look people in the eye. And it reduces people's willingness 
to stake out really kind of ridiculous positions. And then how do you prepare for a negotiation? Well, I am a very careful preparer. And so yesterday we had a negotiation. I was working with a very talented senior associate and I wanted him to lead the negotiation. So before the negotiation, he laid out what the issues were in an issue list. I got on the phone with him, we went issue by issue and decided this is what our position is going to be. This is how we're going to express it. This is what they're likely to come back with. This is what you should be coming back with. And again, if you stick to the principles, you don't have to memorize what your next line is going to be. So that's the intellectual preparation. One of the things I like about negotiations is that it's in some ways you get to have these peak performance moments that are similar. I don't want to glamorize it, but similar to nice athletic events. And so recently I was watching, I think it was the US Open, and they had a heart rate monitor attached to every person on the first tee, because that's when the golfers are the most nervous. And you see that some folks have their heart rates at 60 something. Those people are pretty relaxed. A younger person hasn't been to the open before. He's over 80. Heart rate matters. The, the amount that you can be relaxed in the moment matters. So I prepare physically for a negotiation. I don't want to overstate it, but I keep an eye on how much caffeine is in the system. I tend to keep an eye on that anyway, but I want to make sure I'm not overly caffeinated when I get on a call. And sometimes you can do that because if you're negotiating late into the night, you think, oh, let me have that other cup of coffee so I can stay alert on that call. I would rather have some fruit or something like that that'll wake me up a little bit, but not rile me up a little bit. And then the last point is you don't want to get onto a negotiation hungry because you will either be cranky or you will want to get through the points and not stick to it enough because you want to get off the phone and go for lunch or whatever. What do you do when you think you have to adjust in the middle of a negotiation? Either your counterparty does something you're not expecting, something occurs to you that you hadn't thought of. How do you handle that? Well, we all prepare, but then we're all human. We make mistakes. We don't think of things. Unexpected things happen. If it comes up in the moment, and usually the client is not in the room because these days things are coming up on Zoom. One of the things that I have enjoyed, and it goes to the emotional intelligence point, is being in sync with your client and understanding when something comes out of the blue like that, having enough of a relationship with them, understanding how they're reacting, to know to say, let us give that some thought. We need to take that away and come back to you. There's usually room to do that. If it then ends up requiring you to reverse a position that you had been taking. If you have to do it, you have to do it. And it's just a matter, again, of as you ask the question, and I'm thinking about situations and things that we think about and talk about, one of the things that we talk about in negotiations with my team as we're preparing for them is don't be obnoxious with the other side. First of all, it's disagreeable. It's not our style. It's not our value system. But on a very practical level, you may mess something up and you're going to need to go to them and say, look, I didn't realize how these two sections interacted. I understand I said X, Y, Z before, but I'd like to adjust that. If you've had a course of nasty negotiations, you're not going to have somebody who's willing to help you out on that. 
if you've been graceful with them, respectful to them, and dealt with them with integrity along the way, it's easier to go back and say, okay, look, you raise something, it causes to reconsider something else. I understand it's not what you're expecting, but we really need to revisit this other point. I think it becomes easier. What have you read or watched in the last year that's taught you something about negotiation? Well, I did read the Dale Carnegie book over the last year, and that has helped me. We discussed that. The book on Never Split the Difference, made, I don't know if it was this year, but it was pretty recent. And one of the ideas of the book, which I have come to appreciate more and more as my children have gotten older and have become adept negotiators, is that so many things in life are a negotiation. And when you make that statement, it sounds harsh, right? It sounds like, there you go. Typical lawyer, everything's in negotiation with them. Everything is about winning. And it's not the point at all. It's actually a much nicer point, which is that so much of life and dealing well with other people is recognizing that it is completely legitimate that people have differing interests. Everybody has their own set of interests that they have top of mind. In our family, the interest of the other members of your family is very, very top of mind as well, more so than in other settings. So there's varying degrees of it. But in so many instances, in everything that we do every day, you are navigating your own interests with those of other people and trying to do it in a way that's thoughtful and that has integrity. Ernie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our talk. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.